Broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Good morning, guys. Uh, very good morning on this sort of a bit wet Melbourne morning today. Um, Brett, I can see that you've uh, travelled in by bike this morning with that outfit on. How was yeah. it? True. Uh, not too bad. I, I managed to beat the rain, but I can. I, I got a couple of drops towards the end. And looking out the window, it's not quite coming yet. But you could just feel how dark it was. So it's it's inevitable. Yeah. And are you back to sort of being very, very, I mean, you're always health conscious, but after COVID, is this the, the new Brett or? No, this no, the, this is just par for the course. Just uh, more Yeah, than okay. Joel and I have uh, hit back at the uh, the gym this week. And I tell you what, I'm in a lot of pain and not used to it and have been walking around like just about a dead person. So. <laughs> I'm actually doing quite well. I, uh, I, I tried to keep some sort of sense of activity over the Christmas period. Um, got a little bit lazy in the last week and a half, but. Back into the gym. Actually, we've been back now for this is the third week, yep. so uh, you're feeling feeling all right. Yeah, lost, yeah. lost a few kilos actually. I've got to say. Oh, here we down go. Oh, down, Joel down used to a haircut oh. yesterday. That's all. That, that's <laughs> it. Yes, yes. Got a haircut as well. <laughs> and I've done four nights in a row of not drinking, but did break the spell last night. Oh well. Oh, I get the wow. feeling next Monday might break a run then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Bring on. Bring on the Super Bowl. Hey, it's going to be a uh, a, a, a big big event uh the well i think most people would would probably suggest that tom brady would be the best quarterback of all time yeah, uh, even, even today but if he was able to do what michael jordan couldn't do and lift another team to a championship yeah uh well you know yeah i think yep. he i think he might top out he he's certainly got claims on the goat title yeah. What, what is the GOAT title? I have not been following this. I don't really understand Greatest it. Greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. <laughs> well, it would be interesting to watch. So, Louis, are you a bit of a fan as well? Oh, I enjoy watching it, uh, but I don't follow it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, the Super Bowl itself is is always interesting, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not someone who uh, will know who the teams are until yeah. the, the day before or, or even the day of. Yeah, yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that uh, prior to Tom Brady, uh, sorry, Tom Brady was the youngest ever quarterback to win a Super Bowl championship until he was beaten by Patrick Mahomes last year, who took the title from him. And many are suggesting that if Patrick Mahomes, who uh, I think it's it's only really his fourth season in the league, could win two Super Bowls, uh, you know, they say he's got all the tools to potentially you know, be uh, as good, uh, if not better, well, at least as good as uh, Tom Brady over a 20-year period. I mean, there's a lot of things to pan out over, you know, a 20-year career. You know, you've got to keep healthy, you got to stay injury-free. Um, and you've got to have the right support around you. You've got to have the right you've support. You've got to be a team that can help. Good coaches, good teams, good players, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But, um, but in many respects, this is sort of potentially the, the changing of the guard, maybe, mm-hmm. if or it could be the old dog teaching the new dog some new tricks or... Cut uh, last stand. 
Yeah, it could it could be Custer's last stand exactly. So <laughs> there's, there's so many interesting narratives around this particular uh, game on Monday. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. I'm going to I'm going to certainly enjoy it. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm not your typical Aussie. I like to celebrate successful people and their achievements, and so um, I'm somewhat going for Tom Brady. Uh, as much as I'm a very big admirer of Patrick Mahomes, I think the Bucks, if they can get up. I think it would be quite a fairy tale story and uh, something that we should celebrate. What about you, Brett? Who do you think? Very similar. I must admit, going back when the Pats were dominating, I, I got a bit jaded by it because uh, it was probably at the, around a similar time when Hawthorne dominated the AFL. I just got, I guess I was a bit more of the Australian underdog wanting to see it yep. spread around a bit. Um, but now seeing Tom Brady go to a new team, turn it around so quickly to get them to the Super Bowl, I, I, yeah, I'm on board. I want to see him win. Yeah, good one. All right, I don't guys. want to see Richmond win next year either. Well, <laughs> no, no, we don't want any Richmond wins. No, no Richmond wins. <laughs> when does the football actually start up again? About March, isn't it? Yeah. Pre-season, yeah. Yeah, pre-season will be in, a, I think, two to three weeks, the first pre-season game. They've only got the two and then season proper towards the end of March. Oh, you guys will be excited again. Oh, oh yeah. Well, we haven't been, haven't been to a game for 12 months. Yeah. Well, no. well sorry, even longer than 12 oh. months. About, yeah. about 18 months now, hasn't it? Oh, let us in. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> All right, guys, we better kick off our first topic for the day. Joel, you're going to be speaking to us about economic data points. So what have you got for us? Oh, I've got some economic data points, Steph, some real juicy ones. Um, look, the RBA this week, uh, interestingly, came out with something that I think all investors should be aware of, and, and all investors in terms of uh, this has ramifications for not just stock market investors, but it also has ramifications for real estate investors, fixed income investors. The Reserve Bank of Australia has suggested that they are likely to continue to keep interest rates at the 0.1% uh, rate or the cash rate at 0.1% out until 2024. They are not anticipating raising interest rates for at least the next three three years and uh, and perhaps even longer than that. And they've said that they are happy for um, inflation and unemployment rate to come down. Uh, sorry, inflation to tick up further and an unemployment rate to come down um, before, you know, even considering uh, a raising interest rates. Uh, they, at the same time, they came out with an announcement that they expect uh, inflation for this year to rise from what was previously estimated to be 1% to 1.25%. They would like that in, that inflation rate to get more sustainably between two to three uh, percent before they consider doing anything. And uh, what's more, they have uh, indicated that they're going to continue on with the current quantitative easing program, where they are targeting uh, you know bond purchases to keep uh, the five and ten year government bond yields down at lower than um, than natural uh, levels had it been left to the free market to determine those rates. All of this means that the central bank is certainly on board the stimulus train. They are supporting uh, aggressively the Australian economy. And uh, in, in previous periods where we've gone through quantitative easing, low interest rate environments around the world, not just here in Australia, because this is relatively new, a quantitative easing program in Australia, uh, we have seen asset prices soar. Um, and I think I might have mentioned on a previous podcast, there was a famous uh, uh, hedge fund manager in the United States when the US uh, first announced their quantitative easing program back in 2011. And he was asked, 
So what do you think will, will benefit from the quantitative easing program in the United States when they first announced it? And he said, you know what, it's going to go up. Everything is going to go up. So we, we saw it in the United States. We even saw it in Europe. Uh, when, the, when the central banks are this aggressive, uh, we've seen stock prices rise, real estate rise. We've seen the only thing that doesn't tend to rise is, is uh, bond assets. Uh, so these are fixed income assets. Their prices get bid up, which means that the interest rates drop. Um, so we see interest rates uh, decline. Uh, there's a very good chance that we start to see an increase in mergers and acquisitions as um, as venture capital and, uh, and private equity firms and uh, uh, different uh, corporations start to engage in much more M&A activity mm-hmm. because debt is cheap, so they can buy out competitors, consolidate, try and extract efficiencies. Um, what does this mean, though, for the average person that's, you know, yes, you've got a great um, home loan and everything is sort of ticking along okay, but what does that mean for the economy itself and what does it mean for the average person with, you know, buying everyday products? If everything will shoot up, does it affect your sort of living or...? Well, interestingly enough, if we look around the world right now in terms of what's happened over the past 10 years or 12 years post the global financial crisis, inflation, which many people, many experts predicted would soar under these types of programs, Mm. has remained relatively mute. Okay. And there's some reasons why that. I think uh, a lot of people and a lot of uh, people who have looked back at this and studied um, the effects of quantitative easing believe that the reason why inflation hasn't increased during this period of time is that because is because the way that quantitative easing works is that the, the central bank is essentially creating additional credit. Yes, they're printing money, but they're creating additional credit which they feed into the banking system. And so that money has to be lent out mm-hmm. through the banking system. So basically, the Reserve Bank creates money out of thin air, lends it to banks, Australian banks, those banks then have to assess the credit quality of the borrowers. So there's still some due diligence around how that credit seeps into the economy. Not mm. everyone just gets, you know, a, a big blank check and, yep. and uh, is then able to rush out and buy, you know, Ferraris and BMs and, you know, um, you know, um, beluga caviar and all that sort of stuff. So um, so there is some constraint. But what it, what it tends to mean, though, is that those people who are credit worthy uh, who can get access to the credit or those corporations that are credit worthy and can get access to the credit can be much more active. And that tends to feed into, um, you know, asset prices. And what we tend to see, and there's much criticism around this, is that we tend to see the wealth gap gets much, much uh, greater as a result of many of these policies because those who have the assets, the financial strength, have the means to make themselves financially get richer yeah. because of their means to be able to get access to credit. And it means those people who are workers, who, uh, who are perhaps underprivileged, don't necessarily get access to the same you know, financial um, resources that uh, are available to, to these bigger guys. They're left behind. That, that's my next question, though. I mean, this is this is what happens now. But what, what happens 10 years down the track? I mean, how is this going to impact in the longer term for people? Well, you just probably, I, I think you could probably have a look at the United States right now 10 years later and have a look at all of the um, social unrest that's going on over there. Mm. And I would suggest that you could probably trace a large part of that social unrest to the wealth disparity that's going on in, right. in the US right now, which is probably in some respects a direct uh, result of uh, maybe not 100%, but certainly there is um, you know, a high correlation between when these policies started to be instituted, when the, when the central banks started to become much more active in their uh, policy defence strategies mm-hmm. around the economy, 
and when we started to see the wealth gap in the United States expand dramatically, and then you've started to see the effects of that being social unrest and, uh, you know, much more polarisation between the haves and the have-nots. And um, I think we saw this uh, back in the in the, the, the start of the French Revolution as well, didn't we? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Come back a while now. In many, in many respects. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, you know, what do they say? History doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. And uh, whenever you've seen an uprising in social unrest, it's tended to be because the wealth of the wealth of the nation is concentrated in the hands of a few. Do you think this is a good way to be going down this path, or not? I suspect that, uh, given that what we are seeing today here in Australia, but also overseas, um, I, I, I suspect that you know doing the same things is going to end up with the same results. Mm. I, I think it's probably going to only lead to further polarisation right. yeah. uh, of, of many uh, economies and um, and you know social um, you know the, the social networks and the social fabric that uh, underpins them, um, but. Certainly in the short term, if you've got dough, the, the central bank is saying to you, we want you to invest. We want you to invest in starting new businesses, building new businesses, building new real estate. Um, you know, uh, keeping your money in the bank is not what they want you to do. Otherwise, they'd have interest rates set at a higher level. But uh, they want you to get that money out of the bank, put it to work, and hopefully that creates jobs through increased economic activity. And um, moving on to our next topic, you're going to discuss GameStop with us today as well. Ah, yes. Yeah. We were just uh, we were just checking in on GameStop after our update last. That's uh, what I'm tuning in for. Yeah, last week. So uh, it's still been a wild ride for GameStop. In fact, how wild it's been. Uh, the stock was around about twenty bucks a share, nineteen dollars, twenty dollars a share, uh, only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we mentioned that it got up as high as around about. 480, 490. I'm just having a quick look to zone in. It was around about 483 it, it peaked out at approximately. And today it uh, looks like it's closed around 5350 um, as of last night. So it's it's gone all the way from 20 bucks up to almost 500 and then back down to 53 and a half in about space of two weeks. Um, Probably a similar story for AMC, which is the picture theatre company in the US, which was also one of the ones that uh, was targeted by the Reddit users. Uh, AMC, which was already struggling prior to COVID, uh, was trading at around about $2, got as high as uh, $20.40-ish. 20, $20 and then today it's dropped all the way back down to $7. So incredible volatility. We've seen you know 10 times sort of rise in these stocks, even greater. GameStop was probably close to 20 or 30 times uh, increase in its share price and, and given much of it back in the space of a week. Mm. What does that do to a company? Um, as far as the company goes, it's really only just the trading in the share, so it doesn't have much impact on the company. Mm -hmm. um, well, it shouldn't have uh, material impact on it. I can hear that money's going into their bank. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It's, it's all just speculation that's going on in the shares. Uh, in the share market. But what it does do is it means that I think the regulators are going to have a much closer look at these activities on these platforms. And uh, I, I suspect that uh, this type of activity will be um, further scrutinised and perhaps uh, probably uh, tighter regulations are coming. Fascinating stuff, man. When I look at, uh, I checked in on the chatter on the on the Reddit thread, which uh, which 
seems to have been the main communication platform for these uh, um, uh, these retail investors to buy the stock en masse. And it seems that a lot of the chatter is around, um, yes, I've got a big paper loss now, but I'm not selling. I'm not selling. Everyone just hold on to your stocks and that will stop the share price from going down. And that's a that's a big misnomer, isn't it, Joel? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, at the end of the day, it's supply and demand. If you're not transacting, you're not involved in the direction of the market. So it's it's really only those. Of, of, at any one point in time, a company may have you know 95% of its shares not trading hands, uh, but it's only that 5% that are trading hands that set, that set the share price and set the market. Um, so yeah, you sitting on your hands and not selling. Uh, doesn't mean that others can't come in and overwhelm whoever the buyers are there. And I, I dare say that if you know if you're in a crappy stock, and let's let's make no bones about this, GameStop is a crappy business. It's a crappy stock. <laughs> and and you know AMC a crappy business as well. These are these are challenged structurally challenged businesses, and and for all intents and purposes, GameStop may struggle to even be around in the next you know, three, four, five years, uh, it certainly appears as though it's got a business model similar to um, Blockbuster Video. Uh, mm. And it's probably even surprising that it's still alive today, to be honest. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And and it's a lesson for uh, for those retail traders who are who are trying to say everyone stops selling and, and the share price will hold up. Well, e- even we, we know that's not achievable, but even if it were achievable, it still doesn't hold the share price up because anytime there is a sale and, and the valuation of the company depends on who is willing to buy it at what price. So mm. even if there's no sellers or, or, or very little sellers, there has to be a buyer on the other side of the transaction that's willing to pay that inflated price. Mm. And all of those buyers um, have probably already bought into the stock and now they don't have any more buying power behind them because they've either run out of money or they're unwilling to put more money into that stock at that higher price. So you're basically just going to lose when you're on this. You're basically just going to lose out. Nothing yeah. guaranteed, but but as a high probability. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and some of the chatter uh, on these forums is well, can't someone like uh, Mark Cuban or Elon Musk come in and inject capital into the company and and save it? Uh, and then you and then you've got people criticising that kind of comment. It's like a, a help me Obi Wan Kenobi, except help me help me uh, uh, Elon One Kenobi. <laughs> You're our only hope. Yeah. Uh, it's a real, real prayer that uh, something will come into this company and and maintain its share price. But these poor investors, they're um they're left holding holding the can at the end of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so just coming back, uh, just circling back to this Reserve Bank comment, I was uh, woke up this morning, watched a little bit of CNBC, and noted that um, uh, we're halfway through the earnings season in the United States. Well, 50% of all S&P 500 companies have reported. And uh, usually we would have uh, 65% of those companies tend to beat earnings estimates. At the moment, with 50% of these companies reported, 85% of US S&P 500 companies have beaten uh, market estimates or analyst estimates around their earnings. Um, It's been a very, very strong, robust reporting season so far out of the United States. Um, 
And so, you know, just once again, coming back to this macroeconomic picture, there's no way known I'd want to be fading or shorting this market uh, when you've got uh, interest rates pegged at all-time lows, banks, central banks around the world printing money and uh, creating quantitative easing that feeds into asset prices. You've got the earnings trajectory and corporate profits of, of, uh, you know, of, of corporations around the world but even particularly in the United States, the most important market are, are, are storming back, uh, even with some restrictions in their economy. It, it's just not the environment you want to be sitting in cash. This, uh, you know, could this could this develop into something that you know we look back on and uh, say that was an absolute bubble? Um, there's probably some signs of bubbleness right now, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, but you can make a lot of money in a market that is entering into a bubble territory. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's not necessarily the time to be getting out right now. In fact, everything that we look at from the macroeconomic picture says that uh, we've still got plenty of time for this to, to, to roll out and to, to still play around in this game. Okay. All right. Well, look, we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back and talk about another uh, bubble that may be occurring with Brett and the property market. We'll be back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Okay, and welcome back, guys. Now, Brett, you're talking to us about when the next property bubble is likely to happen. What should we be watching for? It'd be nice to actually know, but there's there's probably some signs now, and I, and I anticipate that we'll hear some some market commentary that the bubble's already beginning to some degree with with the changes we've already seen. Uh, before I, I discuss what the the sorts of data is already telling us, let's make sure we we understand, especially for all the listeners, what a bubble actually is and and how it comes about and what it can mean. So, uh, Investopedia have a simple definition. Uh, basically, it's it's when there's a run-up in housing prices that is fueled by demand, speculation, and exuberant spending to the point of collapse, which means that at some point the demand decreases uh, and there's not enough underlying demand there to support those prices and the whole value starts to drop. Now, for that to be the case, in Australia especially where, where we're looking, we'd need to see the prices grow over a sustained period. Now, we've only seen prices really hit positive territory in December last year. Now, which we discussed last week, how suddenly the Australian market across the board all showed positive gains, uh, but it was only a small increment, like in the low 1% to 2% range. Now, if that sustains and it was growing at 2% per month, well, I would say we're probably in a bubble within six, six to eight months pretty quickly because that sort of price growth isn't sustainable. Uh, the interesting fact, though, that came about last week as well was how strong the auction market has been for the, the first real auction weekend of the year, which was last Saturday. Every capital city showed uh, a significant increase in the number of 
properties listed for auction and the clearance rate across the board was significantly higher and not just higher on recent times but a fair way higher than what it was for the same time last year which is a good indicator uh, so as an example melbourne this time last year for the same saturday had 133 auctions this year there were 308 wow so <laughs> more than double the That's amount huge. of people willing to go to market uh, and the clearance rate was at 84 percent which is really strong so this is this is pre-COVID numbers, really. No, no, isn't yeah, it? Well, the, the pre-COVID number was the 133 and the 71.6. Yeah. 300. Yeah. 300. Yeah. And now, I mean, I don't know whether we can call it post-COVID, but current, whether we're sort of semi-post-COVID. Yeah. So we're we've had more than double the amount of auctions for the same week last year, uh, and a clearance rate 13 or 14 percent higher. So Jeez. that amount of that's really strong clearance rate combined with values increasing is a trend that would say we could be heading towards a bubble. Uh, now, the timing of it is is going to be hard to predict. Uh, but of course, the other side of the equation and, and what generally happens when a bubble comes about is there's a, a shortage of supply because the demand grows so quickly in terms of people that are either seeing it's a good time to enter the market or they've, they've been able to get access to money they couldn't before. Uh, and there's not enough supply to keep up, which is what really drives the prices high. Mm. Uh, so probably the thing that's tempering the bubble a little bit is that the um, building approvals for December also grew at a pretty similar rate. So it, if that's the case and the supply can get to the market, we might see that there's a bit of a balancing act, which would mean that a bubble's not really going to eventuate. But there's one other factor that I think is still going to play into this that we're yet to see fully play out, and that's the population growth. Yeah. I think this is going to be the thing that will prove that the demand is can't be as high as it was previously and, and the amount of building approvals. Now, there's only a limited number of people in Australia that can buy houses. Uh, granted, there's demand for it at the moment, but if, if the supply comes on board and, and the population doesn't grow, it's hard to see where all of those buyers to, to keep the demand up would be. Uh, and the damning statistic is that immigration, which as of March 2020 was at around 80,000 a quarter, uh, as of June 2020 was basically nil. In fact, it was mm. negative. Right. So we've actually lost uh, population. Well, we haven't lost nothing. population, um, but we've lost uh, because our, our organic growth sort of got us into positive territory, but we've right. actually had a, a negative net overseas migration right yeah gotcha so okay. for the last 10 to 20 years uh overseas migration has contributed close to 60 percent of our population growth so we were growing at somewhere between 350 and 400,000 people per year of which over 200 or around 200,000 of that was was overseas migration now that's just totally stopped so if that stays the case for another year or two it's it, and if the property approvals and, and the amount of developers and builders bringing properties to market continues to be at the same rate or, or grows, well, I would say we'd almost see the opposite of a bubble. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was going to ask too on those um, clearance rates. I suppose the data wouldn't be available yet, but is are the property prices going up? Are people paying overs for these? Do you know? Well. Using the terminology like paying overs, it's it's I, I guess that's a bit of a, a a tough one to say what's overs because the, mm. the the data we get is is based on the medians and you know w when they put a median, it's typically only a, a small increment like one or yeah. two percent rises across there. 
So you might find that someone's bought a house for 10 or 15% uh, more than what it last sold for, which could have only been one or two years ago, which would say, wow, that particular property's grown phenomenally. Yeah. Uh, but it's really only the medians that we're, we're able to, to really get a good snapshot of the data on. Uh, mm. And the growth in that, it's all positive. Um, well, certainly in the last month, uh, we'll probably get the January numbers next week. Uh, and I'm assuming from what I can see that that'll be positive again. But it's not like it's a sudden jump of five or 10%. It's only like half a percent to 1%. Yeah, but We've if that's to, um, cumulative and that's every every month, well, that's a phenomenal growth rate. We, yeah. we probably should also put a little bit of context around this as well, because really the last three years, real estate prices, particularly in Melbourne, um, haven't done a hell of a lot, though. They may have gone up net net over that period of time. But ever since the Royal Commission and um, uh, and we and we started to see a, a real crackdown on lending standards about three years ago, at the end of 2017, real estate prices have somewhat sort of been only just still in that recovery phase. We saw a recovery uh, in the back half of 2019. Um, yes. uh, and then we've got, you know, then we've had the, the COVID uh, situation as well. So, yeah. yeah. Remember, so we go back to the Scott Morrison election and there was a lot of pessimism around um, Labor's policies and real estate you know, a lot of people were quite concerned about Labor getting into power at the time because of their uh, policies around how they were going to tax real estate at a point in time when real estate prices were really struggling yeah. uh, and the real estate market was really struggling. So, And um, it was like that election result gave it a shot in the arm for a period of time? It was, yeah. it was the election result and at the same time or, or very soon after uh, the, uh, the APRA uh, relaxed their credit assessment criteria. Their assessment Correct. rates was at a set seven percent, uh, and they relaxed it. Correct. Yeah, true. Yeah. And then, and then, obviously, COVID held back things mm. last year. Well, and Louis, what you said on that relaxing of um, of restrictions, and obviously interest rates getting lower, and supposed uh, e easier uh, borrowing restrictions coming, or, or easier approval processes coming in March. The housing finance approvals uh, were actually at their highest rate uh, for new purchases in roughly 20 years as of late uh, late 2020. Wow, jeez. So total borrowings uh, applied for 26 billion, which uh, the chart doesn't actually, it's a bit hard to read, but it was down at around 10 billion uh, back in 2003. This is a massive jump. Yeah, so a lot of finance approvals. And look, an, another stat here that I think is uh, is really interesting because there's always been this speculation about when the, um, you know, the incentives around COVID dry up and, and what that's going to mean for housing prices when people were no longer getting JobKeeper and, and the, the home loan deferrals were, were stopped. So the data shows that when the, the deferrals were first introduced back in May last year, there was approximately uh, 500,000 loans that were deferred to a value of around $192 billion. Now, the total amount of, of loans that are deferred as at the end of December uh, last year was down at around 20,000 and a total value of only 6 billion. Okay. So more than 80% of the people that did take up that deferral option have gone back onto paying their mortgages. Well, that's good news. I mean, that's, it's it good to hear. It's yeah. a very positive sign. So. Yeah. So, yeah, any potential cliff that people are talking about when the deferrals stop is not likely given the low volume of people actually on deferrals. Yeah. 
Yeah. So right. can't see a bubble. Look, the, if if we monitor this over the next few months and the prices and the clearance rates continue to grow what, like they have over the last two months, we could be seeing a, a trend towards a bubble. But until that happens, I, I, I would assume that it will just probably level out and continue to tickle, just trickle along slightly in positive territory. Yeah, so, certainly one to watch and we'd all like a crystal ball to tell us what's going on, but uh, nice. unfortunately we don't have it. So, look, guys, we're going to take another short break and we'll come back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capitals Advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Okay, and welcome back. Now, Louis, you're going to be speaking to us today about maximising superannuation for high net worth individuals or people. What can you tell us about what to do in that space? Yeah, thanks, Steph. Uh, this is going to be a bit of a technical topic, um, and I don't know about you guys, but uh, these days when I get more technical information, my eyes just glaze over. So... Uh, but anyway, you better be and, good, Louis. <laughs> I'll try and be as engaging as possible. Uh, so, Steph, um, yes, this is something which is more for the the high net worth individuals. Uh, so, this might not apply for both of our listeners. Might just apply for one of our listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and it's really for people whose wealth over their lifetime until retirement is going to approach a few million dollars because what I'm going to be talking about today is the point at which it gets harder and harder to put more money into superannuation. Um, what people might have heard is that there is a $1.6 million limit on superannuation funds these days uh, as a result of uh, some changes from, uh, from a few years ago now. Um, uh, if you cast your mind back, um, it was, I think, when Joe Hockey was treasurer uh, that he put out a federal budget that was going to start taxing people in retirement who had uh, superannuation balances of more than $1.6 million uh, for a single person. And there was a big uproar at the time because these people had based their retirements uh, planning on being tax-free in retirement, and now the government was stepping in and, and taxing them. Uh, well, it was such a small uh, proportion of the population that had these um, uh, superannuation balances uh, of more than $1.6 million per person, which means $3.2 million for a couple. Um, and the rate of tax uh, that applies is only uh, 15%. So there's there's not a there's not a ceiling on how much money people can have in super. There's only a ceiling on how much people can have tax free in retirement on super. But there's also a, a couple of other things around this 1.6 million dollar uh, threshold, which in technical terms is called the transfer balance cap. 
uh, or uh, TBC. Uh, so let me go through that today. Mm. So the first thing I want to do is get an understanding of how it actually works in retirement. Uh, when a person gets to retirement, uh, let's say they're more than 65 years old, they're retired, uh, they switch their superannuation account from accumulation phase into pension phase. When your super account is in accumulation phase, you can receive more contributions into that account. The earnings on that account, the investment earnings, they get taxed within the superannuation account at 15%. Or if it's a capital gain held for more than, on an asset held for more than 12 months, it's discounted to 10%. So the tax rate is 10% to 15% on accumulation accounts. When a person retires and their superannuation account goes uh, into a, an account-based pension phase and they're drawing money out of that account, well then you can't put more contributions into that account. You'd have to start a separate accumulation account if you wanted to put more money into superannuation. But the pension account, the earnings on that account are tax-free. So you can have, uh, and, and the legislation brought in this limit for how much you can transfer into pension phase. And that's what this transfer balance cap is. So if your superannuation account at retirement is less than $1.6 million, you can put that whole lot into pension phase and have tax-free earnings on your superannuation account. If your uh, superannuation account is more than $1.6 million, then you can move 1.6 million of it into a pension account, but anything more than 1.6 million has to stay in an accumulation account where it's going to be taxed at 10 to 15 percent. Okay. Now, for a person whose wealth is going to be well in excess of that anyway, uh, so for a person who's going to have maybe two million, three million, four, five million dollars in personal net, uh, in in personal assets you've probably got a personal rate of tax outside of super that is well in excess of the 10 to 15% that you would have uh, on your super in retirement, even on that portion above the $1.6 million transfer balance cap. So the message is, if your total net wealth is going to be in the millions of dollars come retirement, you still want to be getting as much money into superannuation as you can. Because when you get to age 65 and your total assets is you know, $5 million outside of your family home or even $2 million outside of your family home, you want to be using the tax advantage of super. Even though there's a small amount of tax, it's going to be less tax inside super than the amount of tax in your personal name. Louis, can I ask, the, the $1.6 when it's in pension phase, if you draw on that, can yep. you top it back up? No. No. So, right, no, no, 1.6 is a, is a limit that never gets added to. Correct. It's it's a limit for how much you're able to transfer from accumulation phase into pension phase. Right. Once it's in pension phase and you draw down on that money, there's no uh, there's no rebalancing or, or reaccounting for that money. What I also wanted to cover was if you are – um, if you're not yet at retirement, well, then what do you do to maximise your super? Because there's another thing uh, which kicks in around that $1.6 million mark in the lead up to retirement. So let me get to the next chapter 
of this technical instalments. So for most people, there's two ways to get more money into super, and then your superannuation account also grows because of the earnings in that account. So let's look at a, someone who's a 50 year old today, still years away from retirement. Uh, you've got money that goes into super, which is a concessional contribution, which includes your employer contributions um, or your personal tax deductible contributions. And that's got a cap of 25,000. You've also got a non-concessional contribution, which comes from your own money on which you've already earned and paid tax. So if you've got $100,000 sitting in cash, you can move $100,000 into your superannuation account each year. Uh, and you've got that limit of $100,000 per financial year. Um, there is some rules that you can actually uh, bring forward a few years. So you can make a one-off contribution of $300,000 per person. But for the sake of this, we'll just talk about it simply as $100,000 per year. Once you get your superannuation balance to $1.6 million, as at the end of the last financial year, you actually can't put in non-concessional contributions anymore. So you can't put in your $100,000 lots anymore once your balance gets to $1.6 million. But you can still put in your uh, $25,000 a year concessional contributions and your superannuation account can still grow with investment earnings. So what it means is for someone who is working towards retirement, what you want to do is you want to, as quickly as possible, get to the $1.6 million mark inside super. You want to be pumping your super full of the non-concessional contributions up to $100,000 a year if you can, and you want to do it as quickly as you can. Because if you can get to $1.6 million at age 55, and then let your $25,000 a year go in and your investment returns happen, by the time you get to 65 and retirement, you're gonna have a much higher total super balance compared to someone who doesn't maximize those contributions and only makes a big non-concessional contribution towards the end of their working life, maybe from age 60 or 65 or something like that. So the earlier you can start your non-concessional contributions, then the greater your superannuation balance will be in excess of $1.6 million, but still in the superannuation environment in that low tax environment. The same thinking applies for a person who might be self-employed uh, and, and a business owner who will then sell their business one day. So if, if you're a business owner and you have maximized your concessional contributions, you got your super balance to $1.6 million, say when you're 55 years old, then you get to age 60 and your super account is now worth two or two and a half million dollars. And now you sell your business, you are still allowed to make uh, contributions to super under the business sale provisions. And that's where on sale of a business, you're allowed to contribute an additional one and a half million dollars into super. Wow. Even though you're already higher than that $1.6 million uh, transfer balance cap. What, why is why is that the case? Like, is it just to protect a business owner? What what's the rationale for that? Uh, it's it's part of the um, special concessions available to business owners. Right. So is part that of it. No idea. 
yeah, part of its tax concessions uh, and part of its um, just a bit of a hangover um, and an and allowance for that exemption because historically the thinking for business owners is that they never make super contributions mm. because they keep pumping as much money as they can into growing their business. Of so yep. the mentality of a lot of business owners is that their business is their superannuation account, yeah, 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 even though it's it. not. That's how yep. they – it's their retirement savings. So there is a lot of exemptions from them uh, when they sell their business and combine it with a large contribution into super. So there's right. big capital gains tax discounts for people selling a small business, um, and if you combine that with super, you can get even more capital gains tax discounts and you can move a large amount of money uh, into um, – uh, into superannuation at that time. So uh, that number, $1.5 million, I'm, I'm being rough and round, um, but it's a number which grows each year with inflation. Uh, as of today, it's actually 1565000 that a business owner can move in. So if your business owner has already got to $1.6 million by age 55, then by age 60, their account has grown further and now it's $2.5 million then you sell your business for whatever it's worth and you can pump another $1.5 million into your superannuation account. Now you've got a super account which is worth $4 million. Oh, nice. and Sounds all like a those, pretty good retirement. <laughs> and, and that's a good retirement. That's yeah. why uh, of our two listeners, uh, it's only the one listener with, uh, with the more money that this applies to. Yeah. And, of course, if your situation is a couple, husband and wife, uh, all these uh, all these rules apply per person. Per so person, if you're both okay. both shareholders of the business, if you both have a superannuation account, then you can uh, you can double all of these numbers. Mm. So, super interesting. Certainly something I didn't know about. <laughs> super interesting. <laughs> super interesting. There's the part. The uh, the 1.6. You mentioned the small business concession is is linked to CPI. What about the 1.6 cap? Is that likely to increase over time? Uh, I believe it is likely to increase over time. Uh, it's a relatively, uh, but it's rounded to the nearest hundred thousand. Ah, right. So it'll so, jump every every five or ten years or whatever it is. Correct. Yeah, it'll take a few more years, especially if inflation stays around one percent, which uh, which which the economic stuff that Joel's talking about is suggesting. Uh, it's going to be a few years away. Um, so that will grow. Um, the concessional contributions cap of $25,000 a year, um, that is also indexed to inflation, but in $2,500 increments. So at some point in future, that will jump to $27,500. Uh, so look out for those numbers changing over time by inflation. Yeah. Great update, Louis. All right, guys, we're going to have to uh, wrap it up there. But just before we go, we've got our final segment, You Can't Be Serious. Now, Joel, I know, was doing a bit of research on this this morning and thought his one was quite funny, so we might start with you. Well, not, not so much funny. I thought it was quite amazing, to be honest with you. Um, so in a small village in India, a, uh, a, a leopard chased a dog into a, a family's home uh, in India, and uh, the leopard and the dog ran into their bathroom, their toilet, and we can see that the leopard and the dog say the family shut the door uh, on both of them um, and we can see that the leopard and the dog were both sitting in this bathroom for a number of hours and the leopard did not actually end up harming the dog at all. Uh, as uh, catchers came to try and capture the leopard, 
in the family's home. The leopard uh, jumped up and out of the ceiling and escaped and got away un unharmed. That is one lucky dog. <laughs> that is one lucky dog, one yeah. lucky family and one lucky leopard. <laughs> <laughs> And that just coming through your, your front lounge room, I mean, straight into your bathroom. Not a normal day, is it? Incredible, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Louie? What have you got for us this morning? Oh, I've actually got heaps, and oh. I want to steal one from Brett. So, Brett, you go first. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm just going to touch on something that is uh, completely immature, and it's juvenile behaviour, but it still gives me a laugh, is when people uh, change signs to something that's a little bit rude uh it makes you giggle so so six people have been arrested for taking some rather sizable tarps uh and changing the hollywood sign on the hill to holly boob oh, <laughs> <laughs> a simple one childish but it's still yeah but a bit of fun <laughs> oh geez is that yeah. one you had louis no it's not one that i had uh this week i've got uh several animal bites uh, there's two people in the Northern Territory who have uh, been bitten by crocodiles and, and live to tell the story. One of them was a swimmer who got bitten on the head oh. and managed to pull the crocodile's jaws off. Uh, someone else got bitten on the hand uh, and went to hospital with a suspected broken bone in their hand. I'm going to tell you that is a broken bone if you've been mm -hmm. bitten by a crocodile. Uh, someone in uh, Alice Springs, a 10-year-old girl, has crawled into her bed uh, only to uh, discover a brown snake in oh. her bed oh, and she's been bitten twice on the legs. My goodness. Um, I've got uh, a woman found in the boot of a car. Oh, I saw that. Because she was, she was in the boot of the car while the car was driving. Um, the article doesn't say, but I'm, I'm inferring that there was some kind of abduction going on. I she's think it's drug-related. She's managed to punch out the tail light of the car mm -hmm. from inside the boots and stick her hand out. And a truck driver has seen this hand sticking out the, the tail light and called the police. Uh, and uh, and they pulled over the car and got this person out of the boot. Yeah. Uh, coming back to GameStop, it's such a such a poor stock uh, to get into right now that even Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street is telling people not to get into it. <laughs> uh, but the real one I want to get into this week is, how's this? A COVID patient in the UK has been in an induced coma for nearly uh, like four or five months. Um, and not just that, but she was pregnant at the time. Oh. And she gave birth while she was in a coma. Oh. Three months after giving birth, she's recovered from COVID. She was on a lung transplant list but actually recovered and didn't need a lung transplant. She came out of a coma and met her three-month-old daughter for the first time. That's crazy. Jeez. I hope she still wanted it after that. Imagine that. You'd be like, is this really my child? <laughs> well, and no memory of the childbirth pain. That's right. That's right. Infant baby. Not at all. Yeah. Well, that is a fascinating summary, Louis. Like uh, you've, uh, you've well done. exceeded... Uh, what we wanted this morning. So uh, we'll have to get you doing this all the time. It was a You Can't Be Serious montage. It was. It was a montage. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. I feel like look, I need some to... background music. Yeah, that's, that's true. We're, we're looking out for next week now. All right, guys, we're going to have to leave it there because we are on time. But um, thanks again for all your input today. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we'll do it all again next week. Have a great weekend.